Hey guys, today we're gonna to highlight some of the original commentary and the top articles that we came across for the week of April 9th, 2021 on Validia's Guru Investor blog. So to start, Jack, um, I thought I'd give you the floor and um, you can talk about the article that you wrote on bubbles and maybe even wanna highlight uh, one of the person, one of the people that read it, the feedback you got. Um, yeah, so uh, it's, so I don't know about you, but I've been getting a lot of questions, you know, because of what's been going on with the market in the post coronavirus period, I get a lot more investing questions. You know, people know I'm in sort of an investing business. So I get, I've gotten way more questions since then than I normally do. Um, and then there's been, you know, some of the questions have been things that, you know, obviously are just not prudent decisions. Like, you know, should I buy call, call options in GameStop or something like that? But other one, this was, I got one last week that I thought was a, was a very thoughtful question, which is, and the question was, are we in a bubble? And if so, what can I do about it? And, you know, I think those are two separate questions, but two interrelated and very important questions. And so what I did with my article this week is I wanted to start by trying to define what a bubble is. And then after that, I wanted to say, well, once we've defined, you know, whether we're in a bubble or not, can I, can an investor do anything about it? And so first I'll read this definition from Rob Arnott, um, cause I, I include it in the article and I think it's, it's the best definition of bubble I've seen. And it's, we define a bubble as a circumstance in which asset prices, one offer little chance of any positive risk premium relative to bonds or cash using any reasonable projection of expected cash flows. And two are sustained because investors believe they can sell the asset to someone else for a higher price tomorrow with little regard for the underlying fundamentals. So you've got two things going on here. You know, one is you can't justify, you can't use any sort of fundamental thing to justify what's going on. And two is people are buying things they don't even know what they are. They're just saying, I'm going to buy this because everybody else is buying it. And eventually somebody's going to buy it from me for more money. So I'm going to make money, even though I don't have no idea why I'm making any money. So that's the definition of a bubble. And then the, the second part was, well, once you're, once you know you're in a bubble, can you do anything about it? And that was really the, the bigger part of the article. And that's where I was trying to make the point that even if you know you're in a bubble, it's very, very difficult for you to do anything about it. And, you know, I use the example of the late 90s because the, the CAPE ratio of the S&P 500 reached an all-time high in, I think, around mid-1997. And from that period forward, so if I was looking for a bubble, I might say, you know, all right, an all-time high in market valuation. Now's the time for me to go to cash or to do something. From that period forward, we had about three years of 20% plus returns. So as an investor, if I had made that decision, now eventually I would have been right because eventually we had a major pullback in the market. But if I had made that decision, you know, how am I going to sit there while my people around me are making 20% a year for three years and sit in my cash and not panic or make some sort of you know, poor decision? So I think that the, the gist of the article was it's very hard to define, but to know when you're in a bubble at the time. And even if you know it, it's very hard to do anything with your portfolio. I mean, you can make small changes around the edges. You can try to invest in cheaper assets. You know, there are some things you can do, but it's hard to do anything to time the market such that you're not, you know, negatively impacted when the bubble pops. Yeah. And like you and I talked about, um, you know, one, and this is, this is for me personally, you know, I just have started to get a little bit more diversified across different asset classes in my own personal portfolio. And, and I know that there's, that's like a kind of a timing call. It's like a risk. It's like, you're right. I mean, this thing could melt up. We could have another year or two, three of, of, you know, um, above average stock returns. But for me, that's just, you know, the, the decision that I made, I'm not suggesting anybody else do that, but just for me, that's, you know, what I've, and, and when we were talking about this, it's like, that's a hard thing though, because if you're a lot of investors just don't have the patience, you know, if the market's up another 20% and you're only up 10%, well, you feel like, you know, you have like regret there and, you know, it's really tough to maintain those stances. Um, and when, when the market reverts higher. So, 
Yeah, and you're and you're doing it the right way because if you are going to try to do anything in response to a bubble, like a slow methodical move is the way. You know, it's not you know you don't want to do this all in or all out type of thing. And the other thing is you understand sort of the behavior, and that, that doesn't mean you can control your emotions, but you do understand that in doing this you may lag for a period of time. So you're not likely six months from now if the market's still raging on, you're not likely to abandon your what you've done and go back all in. And so it, that if you're going to do it, it's got to be small moves, I would think, and it's got to be you've got to be willing to stick with it when maybe it's going against you in the short term um what was our podcast this week well before we get to that and i'm not going to mention because i know you don't want to but you got a really nice note from i would say somebody at the top of the food chain in the uh asset management business um on the article so kudos to you i mean we're, we're always surprised to see we're like our articles are being read by someone <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's funny because you write articles for a long time and you, you don't get, you know, we, we get uh, feedback from people who follow us and stuff, but you, you, you know, I've never gotten feedback from somebody like this. I mean, this is probably one of the top five people I've learned the most from like in the investing business. So, you know, it was, it was very cool. Um, it, it was very cool to get that. And, you know, it definitely, you know, you, you never know, like I said to you after we did this, you know, you never know when you're writing these articles, who's reading it. You know, sometimes people you never think would potentially ever read your articles are actually reading them. So that, that's pretty cool. Kind of makes it all worth it when you get positive feedback like that. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the uh, what was our podcast this week? Yeah, so our podcast was about, and we've talked about this, it was about the, um, the different valuation ratios that can be used to measure uh, a company's cheapness. So we talked about the price to book, price to earnings, price to uh, sales, price to cash flow, enterprise value to EBITDA. And we looked at you know, what each ratio measures, where is derived from, so where does the denominator come from? Is it the balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement? Um, we looked at the strengths and weaknesses of each ratio, which that's kind of the key thing. It's like we were really trying to get at like, each one of these metrics has a different strength and a different weakness. And, you know, on Validia, a lot of these are used either within a value strategy, or in some case they're used in combination with each other, um, more like a value composite. And I think that's kind of where we, we sort of ended the podcast was the idea of, you know, maybe combining these, which, you know, originates from some of Jim O'Shaughnessy's work and what works on wall street. Um, and we run a strategy based on, um, his model, the value composite model, which basically aggregates these various metrics together and then tries to look at stocks through each one and then takes like a composite score. Um, so you're not over, you know, reliant on one specific measure or the other. Yeah, there's, you know, this, this is belief from some investors that value is value. And it doesn't matter how you define value, you know, over the long term, you're going to get a similar thing. And, and, you know, even over the short term, you're going to get a similar thing. And, you know, just looking at these ratios, they're all looking for a different thing in a company. So they end up selecting different types of companies and they all can you know, you can invest in two value funds and you can get very, very different performance. Say like the last year is a great example of that because although price to book is probably the factor most people would consider the worst over the long term, you know, if you look off the market bottom on March 26th, price to book is killing some of these other factors. Um, you know, and part of that is price to book has a low has low quality sort of embedded in it. And so the fact that these low quality companies have been doing really well has driven price to book ahead of the other factors. Um, that, that obviously doesn't mean price to book is a better factor than it was a year ago because one year means nothing. But it, it just goes to show that depending on how your fund you're investing in defines value, whether they use one of these metrics, whether they use a composite of all of them, you can get really different returns. So it's just important to understand what they are and maybe the, the differences and the pros and cons of each one of them. What was um, the article that stood out to you this week? Uh, it was called Market Power or Moat. Um, I think it was, a C it was a CFA Institute article. 
Yes, mm-hmm. I believe it was. Yeah, so it's, it's it's interesting because this is something we deal with a lot because we run a quantitative strategy based on Warren Buffett, and you know he he's obviously been the biggest proponent of this idea of a moat, and so we try to we have criteria in that quantitative strategy that tries to identify companies that potentially might have a moat, but it's it's very very hard to do, which is what they said here, you know, because all of these things you might use to identify a moat, like high returns on capital, something like that, they tend to be mean reverting over time, and so certain companies will be able to sustain it over time. And that's what we're trying to find with our model. But it is very, very difficult to identify moats in advance. And this article talked about something that what they found is something better than looking for a moat might be trying to look at firms that have market power. And market power just meant there aren't very many competitors in the industry. And so when you when they looked at it that way, it actually performed better. And what was interesting about it is when they, they looked at it in two different ways. They looked at it from the perspective of individual stocks, and then they looked at it from the perspective of funds. And so they, they found from the perspective of individual stocks, firms that had a high market power actually did not outperform. But funds that invested in stocks that had high market up. Uh, market power did outperform. And the reason is, again, there, there's a mean reversion element there where firms that have high market power don't necessarily sustain it forever. And so the funds, I guess, were, were figuring out, you know, were investing in these companies when they had the high market power and the stocks themselves eventually mean reverted. And so, you know, the, it, it didn't work over the long term. So I, I, it, this is like sort of the jewel of high quality company investing is everybody wants to find these companies that have moats. And so I just thought it was interesting that they looked at it in a different way. Um, and that they were able to find sort of a different measure that they thought was maybe better than trying to seek out high moat firms. Very interesting article. Um, and, you know, it kind of reminds me of we run a strategy behind the scenes. It's not public on Validia, like called Industry Leaders, which looks across different industries and then tries to look at industries where you're seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, a consolidation or over time you're seeing less and less companies, but you're seeing a higher level of profitability, which basically indicates that, you know, the industry is basically growing, but the profits of that, you know, business or industry are more so going to, you know, the largest companies. So you're kind of quantitatively identifies like these companies with high degrees of market power. It's also something I think um, Kai Wu has sort of talked about to some extent in some of his work. Um, We've had Kai in the podcast. He is the guy behind Sparkline Capital, and he writes excellent research. Um, and I think he's written about this sort of concept a little too. So it's definitely uh, interesting stuff. You're right. The, the model we run, what it's trying to do is it's trying to find industries that are consolidating, and then it's trying to find the firms that are actually taking the market share inside those industries. So the idea is, is similar to this. If, if, you know, the, if the industry is getting smaller, the firms inside the industry have more market power, and then let's try to find the stocks that are actually taking the most share within there, and those are sort of the ones it selects. So yeah, no, I think that's, it, it is very related to the same concept. What was your article this week? Yeah, so it was um, an article in Fortune um, written by Ben Carlson. People probably know Ben. He's a prolific writer for Ritholtz Wealth Management, but from time to time, it might be once a month or or something, he will publish an article in Fortune. And the title of the article was, This is the single biggest risk to the stock market right now. And so he starts with this idea, which we know the market's been to some extent bothered by this increase in the 10-year yield. Um, so the 10 year bottomed at like, you know, half of a percent in the summer and it's been a pretty, you know, decent sized move. It might be up around 1.6, 1.7 right now, somewhere around there. And so the market is trying to digest that. And typically, it, you know, it, the, the, those interest rates have a lot of different implications for 
growth stocks and just the, 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 the market in general, the risk-free rate and everything, a lot of valuations of companies. And so he sort of starts with like asking the question like, okay, so when we've seen a 1% or more increase in the 10 year, how have stocks performed um, when that's happened? And he goes back to 1950 and he shows that it's maybe like a dozen or so times in these periods when you had a starting yield of X and ending yield 1% or more higher. And what he shows is that in the vast majority of those periods, the market actually does very well. There's only been two instances where stocks were down um, in that type of rising rate period. But then he kind of pivots and says, you know, what's much more important here is inflation. And when you have, going back to 1928, and he does a great job of like getting this data for decades and just crunching it and putting it in, and, you know, putting it in these articles and, and wrapping thoughtful insight around it. But he shows that, um, you know, inflation is not good for stocks. So during periods of rising inflation, the average annual return for stocks is much lower. It's like 16.7%. When you have falling inflation, um, you have a 16.5% annualized return. And then when you have inflation under 3%, you have about a 15.7% annualized return. And when you have inflation over 6.3%, you have um, a lower than average market return. And, you know, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the core of what he's trying to get at. He's saying rates, that in of itself, that could be just, just discounting higher growth. What's really more of an issue that investors need to be thinking about and concerned about is if on the backside of this, you know, all this money that's in people's bank accounts, you know, um, results in, you know, much higher, longer term persistent inflation, because then the result of that, as we know, is the Fed will have to raise rates. And that sort of brings the whole business cycle, you know, maybe to an end potentially um, and could cause, you know, a downturn, certainly in stocks or the, you know, slowdown in the economy. So I don't know. It's just a good, it's, it's good. It's good to think about rates and inflation are important, but I think they react or investors and in stocks react very differently to both things. I thought one of the important things he did there is he used a rate of change. So there, I think there's a common misconception that, you know, high inflation, for example, might be a problem for stocks, but what really matters more with a lot of these variables is, the rate of change in the variable, but also the rate of change in the variable relative to expectations. So if you have high inflation and it's not changing, that that's not as much of a problem because it's it's priced into the market. It's when you get these unexpected shocks in inflation, when inflation ends up growing at a rate that's greater than what the market expects it to grow at, that's where you see problems. And so that, that, that's why it's important. He didn't say, you know, high rates of inflation are bad for the stock market. What he said is a high rate of change is bad for the stock market. And I, and I think it's important for investors to maybe distinguish those two concepts. Yeah. And the other thing he just sort of ends with, and then we'll wrap it up, is like, you know, you could have a rip roaring economy and you might have a market that doesn't do very well. It's kind of like what happened last year. You had, you know, probably the worst fall off in GDP maybe ever since the Great Depression. And yet the market bottomed because of all the government intervention and what the Fed did and everything like that. But, you know, it doesn't his point here in conclusion was, you know, it doesn't really mean, you know, if rates are rising because of better growth expectations and an improving economy as we, we reopen, it doesn't, that, that doesn't automatically mean that stocks are going to go up. 
yeah, you know, the market cares about the future. You know, the market cares about what's going to happen and, you know, it doesn't care about what's happening right now. It cares about what's going to happen in the future. And so, like you said, I mean, you can have a great raging economy, but if the market thinks that's going to roll over, um, then the market's going to start going down while the economy's still going up. So I think that's an important point to understand. So we'll put links to all these uh, summaries and articles and podcasts in the show notes. And we appreciate you guys watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.